You're listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. In this week's lesson, Jesus and Rejection, Philip Edwards will examine the many causes of rejection and how Jesus bore the pain in his body so that we may enjoy a life of love. We hope you enjoy today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk where you can study past modules, register for future modules and see the other ministries we have to offer. You can also now follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. And now over to Philip Edwards for today's teaching. Welcome to uh, week three on our study of this uh, interesting, although sometimes quite a challenging uh, subject of rejection as we uh, examine, has this deeply affected me or do I need to uh, be healed in some way in my life because of, because of what life has thrown at me? We're going to continue that uh, study this evening. We're going to look at two subjects. One is the many causes of rejection. And what we'll do is, uh, it's like a list, uh, but as we go through it, I'll explain what I would like you to do as we go through this list together. And then we're going to look at how Jesus himself was rejected and how he, through uh, what he did on the cross, he bore, it says he bore it for us. He, he carries it away. He carries the pain of it away. So that's where we're going this evening. Before we start though, let's pray as we normally do and just uh, present ourselves to God and uh, ask him for his help. Father, we thank you that you're ever ready to minister into our hearts by your Holy Spirit. And so we present ourselves again before you. We want to study, we want to understand And Lord, if you have something specific for us as individuals this evening, will you please minister it into our hearts? Uh, Lord, we want to be healed. We want to be whole. We want to be restored so that we can reach out in love and touch others. Father, we ask you to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I had this week some uh, books uh, given to me and uh, there's two I just want to introduce this one to you I'll introduce the other one a little bit later uh, it's from the truth and freedom series and it's called uh, rescue from rejection uh, it's by sovereign world limited and uh, I would recommend it to you I could recommend books to you all the time but I don't do that but this is an exceptionally good book and if you feel you want to read more or understand more or just want you know just to go into it in greater depth that is a very good book that I could recommend to you just wanted to mention that one this first lesson is then we shall look at the many causes of rejection and uh, all of us have, uh, in living in this world, we live in a world, well, it's actually quite broken, isn't it? And uh, this, this brokenness that is surrounding us all the time, uh, we live with people who are really quite selfish. There are lots of loving people, but many people we come into contact with, they're quite selfish. And it's, it's all part of the fallen nature. It's about me and looking after me. And because of that, people often do very loveless things to us. And uh, we can be hurt uh, quite deeply by it. And that's what we're really looking at. That's what rejection is. So then all of us suffer from it to a lesser or a greater extent. 
some people, they seem to uh, walk through life, as it were, and stuff just, it, it doesn't cling to them, as it were. It just it rubs off them. It just, they just don't get affected by it. Other people, they seem quite crippled uh, by the way that people talk to them or treat them. They're very hurt. They're very rejected. I think also we should take responsibility for the time when we've rejected people because we've, we've sometimes been very hurtful and unloving and unkind and we have been responsible in things that we've said, the way that we've spoken to people, the, the attitudes that we've had towards people. We've, we've created them or we've created rejection for them really and so we need to be very careful uh, so it's not only about how we can be healed from the pains of it but how we can change so we make sure that we don't keep ministering it to other people as well so i'm going to go through as it were the different stages of our life all the way from conception into adult life and just uh, look at different ways in which rejection can affect people what I would like you to do as I go through the list, I want you to be sensitive to the spirit and say, is there anything here I need to take note of? If you have the notes and the list in front of you, you could tick it off. If not, if I say something about a particular uh, aspect of where uh, rejection operates in someone's life and you think, oh, I, I feel that very deeply that that has happened to me, just make a note of it and then as you go for some prayer ministry or you sit down and talk to someone and you ask them to pray for you, you could bring this up and say, I think I might need some ministry in this particular area of my life. Maybe it was something that I've never bothered to look into much. I've never, I never brought this up before, I think, but I think the Spirit of God has spoken to me about it. So that's one of the benefits of uh, looking through this list. Rejection at conception. Before a child is born, what I'm going to suggest to you, while it's still in the mother's womb, it can suffer uh, wounds or hurts of rejection. So even before we came into the world, as it were, we could have been damaged by these wounds of rejection while we were still with our mothers. A very good book I read about this, uh, it's called The Secret Life of the Unborn Child. It's by uh, two fellows, Thomas uh, Verney and John Kelly. I'm going to just quote some of the things from this book, uh, just a few uh, paragraphs. We know that the unborn child is an aware, reacting human being who from the six months on, and perhaps earlier, leads an active emotional life. The fetus can see, can hear, can experience taste, and at a primitive level, even learn before the birth. Most importantly, can feel. What a child feels and perceives begins his attitudes and his expectations about himself, whether he ultimately sees himself and hence acts as a happy or sad, aggressive or meek, secure or anxiety-ridden person depends in part on the messages he gets about himself 
in the womb. Therefore, it is clear that a denial of love can affect a child before it's born. The womb becomes the child's first home. Is it friendly or unfriendly? Is it peaceful or is it hostile? Some other research was done, I took it from uh, another source here. They put it like this, at 16 weeks, an unborn, an unborn child uh, shies away from light. They obviously did some tests and experiments. At 20 weeks, there is a response to speech patterns. At 25 weeks, the baby can kick in time to music. I don't know any of these things. I mean, if some of you ladies have carried babies, you know a lot more about this sort of thing than I do. Uh, and at six months, the unborn baby can understand the subtle shifts in its mother's emotions. So this person, because that's what it is inside, can respond to what's going on. You say, can you substantiate this in the Bible? As Christians, we want to substantiate everything in the Bible, don't we? Uh, I mean, thank you, scientists, for all the research you've done and everything else. But I wonder what the scripture says about this. Well, if we remember the story where uh, Mary was pregnant with Jesus and she visited Elizabeth, and what happened is as soon as the, the child Jesus entered into the room where Elizabeth was, she said, the baby that's in me, Elizabeth now, leapt within me. Okay, I want to read that passage to you. It's in Luke 1, 39 and 45. It says, at that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she, when she entered Zachariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb. Now, it, you're thinking, oh, well, it just leapt at that minute. No, that's not what the scripture's saying. When Jesus entered, the baby, who was going to be John, leapt inside her. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Amazing. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child that you will bear. But why am I so favoured? that the mother of my Lord should come to me. Then she says, as soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ear, the baby in my loom, womb leapt for joy. So there we go. The, the baby responded, uh, responded spiritually, not just to a noise or to a light, but responded spiritually. And then what, what happened, John was, was a great prophet, the greatest of prophets, Jesus called him. He was the last of the old sort of prophets that he came. And when he, he leapt inside, she prophesied. It was as though Elizabeth, whatever was in John, whatever happened to him and the Spirit of God, whatever it did, she started to prophesy. So it was as though she, Elizabeth, became his mouthpiece. She spoke on his behalf. She wasn't the prophet, he was this child in the womb was the prophet. So he prophesied before he even came into the world. Fascinating as you just uh, think about that and, and look about, okay, so children can receive, feel things, know things, understand things, even before they're here. 
reasons then for why a baby might feel or experience rejection in the womb. It's about what the mother experiences and feels and receives. And the idea that as she receives it, it's communicated to the child. Uh, one of those things that, uh, that the couple who wrote the book, they said that uh, the child ex can experience what the mother experiences in her moods. And so if she's angry or bitter or something, this gets communicated to the child within her. Why the unborn child might experience rejection in the womb. The first is, she doesn't want to be pregnant. It's as simple as that. So what is she is communicating to the baby is, I don't want you. I wish this had never happened to me. Simp something as simple as that. Or the baby was illegitimate. And then she doesn't want that at all. That's just an awkwardness to her. I was looking into the whole thing of illegitimacy uh, because in this world that we live today in the West, it's almost like it's irrelevant. It doesn't matter. Two people live together. She becomes pregnant. She has a baby. It's like you wouldn't say the child was illegitimate. You wouldn't bring that up. But the Bible brings it up. This child is excuse the word, it's a bastard child. It's illegitimate. It, it's not in God's order. And actually, Scripture indicates if a child is illegitimate, it could come under a curse. It says this in Deuteronomy 23 and 2. No one born of a, of, of a forbidden marriage, nor any of his descendants, may enter the assembly of the Lord, even down to the tenth generation. It was quite a severe thing. If you were illegitimate, you couldn't worship with others for 10 generations. It went on. And that affected, if you work out what 10 generations was, it affected thousands and thousands of people. They were excluded from worship with the people of God. Very serious. A very, and that was the result of the curse. I just looked up the illegitimate rates, numbers in, in this nation Last year, 50,000 babies were born illegitimate in our nation. That's about 7% of all the births. Today in our nation, they estimate there's something like 2 million people are illegitimate, of illegitimate birth. In the sight of God, it's serious, you see. It has consequences. It has spiritual consequences. People take no note of that. People think nothing of that. But it's serious. It opens the door for the enemy to come and to break into their lives. Maybe uh, the child is rejected because uh, the parents already have a big enough family. It was a mistake. They didn't want this one. That would be communicated. We didn't want you. We had our family, but these things happen. Maybe because of extreme financial problems on the family that they didn't want the child. Conception, maybe it happened too soon after marriage. They wanted to wait some time and have some live together, as it were, a husband and wife, and then this thing came on. It almost uh, occupied their life, filled their life. They didn't want that. 
maybe the fear that comes because doctors say, well, we're not quite sure if this baby's perfect. They're talking about maybe the baby might be deformed. So you don't want it. You're even considering not keeping it. You're, you're communicating something to that child. Maybe you've attempted an abortion, but it wasn't successful. So what you technically did is you tried to murder this person on the inside of you. Babies who were perhaps uh, born through rape or incest or adultery, uh, maybe from parents who were addicted to alcoholism or to drugs. Whatever the reason, we don't want this child. Separation and divorce, sometimes children are blamed or the baby itself might be blamed. That's why the husband's gone, the man has left. A shock or trauma during pregnancy could create a problem within the child. And a mother becoming late in life, thinking, am I too old to have this? Should I have this child now? Will the child be all right? Better if I'd had the child when I was younger. We also see from Scripture that God is very concerned about the unborn child. We have this idea, it's not a person until it actually comes out and you can hold it and see it. Scripture doesn't say that for one little minute. The minute you conceive this, what is in you, fetus they call it, it's, it's a person. And God sees it as a person. And as a person, it has spirit, it has the ability to receive and to feel and to know and to understand says in 139, Psalm 139, 13 to 17, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden uh, from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. God's there from the moment of conception. He's there. He's seeing it. He's, he's looking over it. He's, he's wondering about the future of that child, wondering in a way that he knows the outcome, but he has wonder and expectation for this child. Let's move on now to uh, rejection that we might receive uh, in infancy. Those early months, those early years, are really vitally important to the child. So much is formed in that time, in those uh, few years. And children mirror what they see around them. The mother, the father, the other siblings have this tremendous influence over this child and they simply look and they just copy what they see, everything they hear. Their spirit is almost like wide open to anything. We must see children as spiritual beings, uh, always and realize they, they are spirit beings and they receive things into their spirit. We do things to children what we wouldn't do to adults 
in pushing them aside or ignoring them or not bothering to explain things to them. Now, we mustn't explain things to a child like we would to an adult, but everything needs to be explained. Children need to know, not, not all the details, but they need to understand in their own way, why is my father not here? What happened to my sister? Just tell me. Don't, don't tell me nothing. Don't ignore me because I'm a spirit being and I need to have an answer. I need to be able to uh, deal with this thing. We're so foolish, really, and careless with our children. I've put another little list here, so I'm going to go through these, and uh, if, if any of them responds really, uh, you get a reaction within. Just maybe uh, mentally remember it, or jot it down, or just... Uh, words affect a child. We heard some testimonies last week, uh, things like, uh, you know, you were a mistake, or we didn't want any children. I wish you were never born. I mean, how would you ever say that to a child? Well, I suppose parents get angry and they get steamed up at times and they say things that they're quite hurtful, terrible, really. Children are sometimes at birth, they're separated from their parents for a long period of time because perhaps uh, they have to be, uh, you know, going incubation or, or they need special treatment or something. Well, that's, that's a problem for that child. That, it's a spirit being, remember. Children given up for adoption in their early months or the real early years of their life. Maybe there's preferential treatment in the home to one child over another. Children see everything, you see. They do. They just notice stuff. And, and it hurts them. It affects them. And it can be a small thing, but it builds up in their minds and they say, you love him, you love her, you don't love me. It's obvious, they're, they're trying to work things out. And so things need to be done very carefully with children. The trauma of shock or death, divorce or separation within the home, physical disabilities or speech impediments within the child, Prolonged childhood illness. Parents who confront and argue in front of their children. They just, they just look, don't they? And they're taking all of this in. It's having a detrimental effect. And then as they grow a little bit older and they find themselves perhaps uh, in school or in teenage years, children can be really cruel to other children over-criticised, over-disciplined, dominated, ignored or favoured. All of those things can happen to you in school, without a shadow of a doubt. Being sent to boarding school, being sent away from your parents, and of course, um, those who have some wealth or some standing in life, they do that, and of course, they do it much for their, for their own benefit, and maybe they think it's best for the child, but we hear stories, don't there, of people so desperately lonely and uh, just awful in their lives. Being bullied, unfairly treated by teachers or children. I was a teacher. I, I don't think I bullied, but I definitely remember there were children that I liked and children that I didn't like. There were children that I was kind to and children I was a lot stricter with. And my justification was, well, you've got to be like that with them. 
um, I don't know, you see, uh, teachers are human beings and uh, they sometimes get it wrong, very wrong, actually. Under pressure to succeed in school, you just know all the time your parents want you to pass exams, pass exams. Uh, there's the opposite, though, where parents don't care, <laughs> disinterested. They never go to parents' evenings or anything, really. They just can't be bothered. It's bad both ways. We've got to be caring and yet not apply the pressure. There is religious pressure on children. Um, I was a pastor and so we had pastors' kids. Um, I don't think we put pressure on them. Perhaps they, they, they felt the pressure. They should be good or different or better or more well-behaved or something. They were under some pressure to be different. It's just one of those things. Personal comments about yourself. I'm no good, I can't do that. I'm useless at that. I don't like that. All that sort of stuff, all negative things towards yourself. Exclusion from groups and friends. Awful, isn't it, in school when you're not the kid with all the in-kids, you know. You're the always one around on your own in the playground and no one wants to do anything with you or, you know, play with you. You're, once you're labelled as that, they just push you aside all the time. Being called names. Being laughed at in class being put down in school or at home. In my own experience, I stammered uh, right up to the age of probably, I was about 14 or 15. Awful, awful experience. Uh, just afraid always uh, to be asked a question. Even if you knew the answer, it didn't matter whether you knew the answer or not, it wasn't gonna come out anyway. And so you just die all the time. And then when you did it, sort of, teachers were generally good what I can remember but the kids just laughed didn't they just laughed all the time I remember that situation where Ed Balls remember her the Labour politician and uh, he was in the opposition benches and he started to stammer because uh, he did stammer and they just just the opposition well they, they ridicule you anyway but it was merciless and it was awful you know, just seeing it, you felt, you felt for him, really. <laughs> Whether you were red or blue, it didn't matter. You felt for that man, you know, and uh, no compassion, no mercy. And these are grown-up statesmen who are leading our country. You think, my Lord, this world is a terrible place. He has spoken about it since. And it's, it's being aired quite a lot, isn't it, the whole thing about stammering and so forth. Being put down in school or at home. Constant sickness causing academic problems. You're off for long periods of time and you fall behind, uh, those sorts of things. Injustice of being punished wrongly. You were blamed for something. You knew you never did it and yet you suffered the punishment for it. Being picked on by teachers or ridiculed. Pressure from parents regarding your brothers or your sisters. Your sister's so much cleverer than you. Your brother's so much better than you. You just think, oh, that's it then. That's it. You hear that enough times, you think, I don't care. And you just, it, it's a self-defeating thing. You just think, I can't be bothered then. Guilt over teenage pregnancy. 
that's the, the school life then, the teenage years, all that stuff can happen to you. Teenage years in childhood and even in the womb, now we move on to rejection in the family. Being called names by family members, emphasising personal features about you. Uh, I don't know if in your family you have nicknames. We have nicknames in our family. I mean, they're all positive and upbuilding. Okay, uh, but um, yeah, a cruel one must be awful, mustn't it? Uh, awful. Uh, constant criticism. It doesn't matter what you do, it's wrong. It's wrong all the time, it's wrong. Even when it's right, it's wrong. And uh, you might do something uh, you, and you've done a good job, but there's a little bit of, that it's not quite right. So the person comes in, it doesn't see all this, they see this and they say, why haven't you done that? And you go, I can't believe it, you know, it's just, it, and, and of course that wouldn't happen once. That would happen again and again and again and again and again and in the end you just, it, it goes deep and you think as an adult, it's not affecting me, I can cope with that, it doesn't matter. It does, because we're sensitive spiritual beings in here and it's quite damaging to us and we can be worn down about it and we don't realise what's going on. Poverty, always being poor, never having enough money. It's just a struggle, every day's a struggle. You just get over this problem and another and another and that wears you down. Immigration difficulties, people coming with uh, problems with the language or, or being, you know, racist slurs against them, all that sort of thing, causing people to feel rejected, unloved and unwanted. We've been a cruel nation over the years, haven't we really? the way we've treated immigrants. And really, to my shame, we're still doing the same thing. It's awful. My, my heart goes out to these poor people who are trying to, trying to make a way for themselves in life. I would do the same for my family. I'd say, come on, we're not going to sit here and die. Let's go somewhere and make a life for ourselves, only to find when you get there, there are these bars against you and all legit legitimate reasons why we shouldn't be allowed in. As Christians, we need to find compassion in our hearts. The Word of God says, remember the alien, remember. You were aliens once, remember them, remember them. Domination by uh, one member of the family. Uh, cruel parents, unhappy parents alcohol or any other addiction in the family. A family member convicted of crime, just the shame that it brings on the family. Parents showing no active interest in children's development. Being an only child, possibly spoilt or possessed by one's parents. They think that's the best thing, but it's not the best thing. They're not allowed any freedom to grow up or change or grow or be themselves. They're controlled in all that they do. Lack of affection in the family. Redundancy or long periods of unemployment. You just lose the value you have of yourself. Financial disasters. Separation. Broken engagements. Divorce. 
sexual abuse inside or outside of the family, feeling of not being physically attractive, being ashamed of one's sex, an inability to talk to either or both parents, being forced into adult responsibility too soon. Something wrong about that, isn't it? Where kids are left to look after so many other kids in the family as though a great chunk of their life is missing. They're not developing properly. It's, it's not good. Ill-treatment by step-parents, being forced by parents into wrong behaviour, stealing and so forth, lying, cheating. The premature death of a parent, being a, a middle child and ignored, being an eldest child with unrealistic expectations put on you. So it doesn't matter where you're born, whether you're first, second, third or fourth, it can be ministered to you all along the line. So much is expected of the first one and uh, we've joked in our family, you know, and it's true probably in lots of families, you have lots of photographs of the first child, don't you? And then you have a few fewer of the second child. And when you get down to number four, you have to search to find photos of that one. Well, that's sort of natural, but see, everything has an effect. Everything does. They're looking around and going, how come there's no photos of me in this room? You know, there's photos of everyone else. And, and of course, lots of other things that are built up causes that feeling, that uh, experience of being rejected. Coping with the facts of adoption, being handicapped or disabled, being fostered, children rejecting their parents, especially when they're old. Mm. You see, that's something we've got to go through as well. We grow into that and uh, awful when you think, you know, I've heard people say, I wish I'd done more when they passed on. I wish I did more for my mum or more for my dad, they're seeing, they rejected them. So we can be rejected there in the womb and we can be rejected in old age. A refusal, uh, a refusal to have sexual relations in marriage, unfaithfulness in marriage, an inability to have children, uh, being evacuated in the time of war doesn't apply to us now because a whole generation were sent away from the family for a long, long period of time. And war separated husbands and wives for many, many years. I worked with a guy who, uh, he went off to the, uh, the Far East and he said he went away from home and he was six years away from home. Even when the war was over, he still wasn't allowed to come home because he still had to do a lot of stuff after the war because the country was in such a mess. For six or seven years, just after you got married, to go away. Awful, isn't it? Awful situations to deal with. Maybe some of those struck you stronger than other things. Maybe you thought, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Maybe there's other things in your life that the list, it could go on and on and on, what the problems could be. I was thinking also of abuse. We're hearing a lot about abuse now, aren't we? Of historic cases of abuse on our televisions uh, day after day. And all the abuse that happened in the church, which uh, I'm only ashamed of it because I'm part of the church. 
I, I sometimes want to distance myself from other people in the church, but we are the church of Christ. We are, and so we're all together in this. And uh, I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed that people who would call themselves my brothers did such an awful thing. We see that abuse is rising uh, in this country. There were um, reported 614,000 abuse cases last year. And uh, there was probably the same number that weren't reported. So we're seeing over a billion, uh, sorry, over a million cases of abuse happening uh, that the police know about and all the other things that we don't know about. It's becoming more and more common and it's, it's frightening in our society. There are different types of abuse. There's verbal abuse or mental abuse, negative pressure by thought or word. Being put down all the time is abuse. Or maybe one of the partners just does the silent thing, you know, doesn't talk. It's abuse, you know, and uh, it's, a, it's a terrible thing. Um, it's best if you don't brow or argue, but you know, if you've got to get something off your chest and you want to say it, don't drag it on for days and days and, and, and be silent and reject the person. Say what you need to say and be one quickly to come back and to, to heal and to restore so, uh, you know, we can move on. Being ignored, long silences. There's physical abuse. It could be in childhood, adolescent years, and it can follow someone through all the way into marriage. Emotional hurt and humiliation. Sometimes people discipline their children cruelly. They're cruel in lots of ways. They're abusing their children. And then there's sexual abuse. It usually happens, we're told, with family members, uh, more often than not, which leads to guilt or fear or confusion because these are the very people who should be loving you and supporting you. And as a child, you can't work all this out. There's the shame. You're supposed to be loyal and yet you're afraid of saying anything. You're afraid of speaking up. You've told your mum maybe, but she didn't do anything anyway. And, it, and so you live with this as a child, trying to make sense of life and what it's all about. So painful, so sad. The person who's abused will grow up with a sense of defilement, as though they're unclean, that no one would love them. There's this conflict going on within them, a conflict perhaps to do with hate and fear and distrust all at the same time, and you're not mature enough to work this stuff out. And of course, that strong feeling of betrayal. And of course, rejection in marriage, whether we have been separated or divorced, it will always lead to rejection. It will, it, you can't help it. Um, the marriage ceremony is something that we entered into in covenant, man and woman and God. And even if they weren't Christians, God was still there. It was what God wanted them to do. God would have blessed the marriage even though they weren't Christians. God doesn't just bless Christians. He blesses the whole of his creation. And so he wants to, he's there in the marriage 
and he wants to bless it. So in divorce, when we rip this thing apart, it's very serious to God. It's very, very serious. It's the breaking of covenant, and we, we studied this in our last module, how important the covenant relationship is. It creates a sense of being cast aside by somebody, made to feel worthless. You, you made yourself vulnerable only to be abused and cast aside. And the loss that comes, the loss of, loss of home, loss of children, loss of income, loss of relationship, loss of everything, tremendous loss that came in coming to Christ. There's healing. There's healing. He knows the pain that we've suffered. He knows it. And he says, listen, I will send someone to suffer all of that pain. And when you see what he has suffered, that is for the reason that you can transfer that pain onto him. So rejection all the rejection that's happened, instead of it now creating pain within you as a person in coming to Christ, he bears that pain away. We'll look a little bit later of how that works, how through the cross he carries things away from us. I can remember many times in my life, it, well, I say many, if it's 10, it's many, but that's very few <laughs> compared with the lives of others. I was very loved and brought up in a very loving environment. And so, but I can remember the times when I experienced rejection, whether it was people laughing at me or whether I felt insecure or I felt my brother was loved more than me, whatever it was, and I can remember them. So they were, they were wounds within me. They must have wounded me, otherwise I would have forgotten about them. But we remember the things that wound us and, and they stay with us. But I can say that none of them hurt me. They did at the time. And if Christ hadn't died and I hadn't received him as my saviour, they could hurt me as much today as they did on the day that it happened. But what Christ has done, he's come to carry away the pain of it. It happened, it was real, but I don't have to carry the pain of it anymore. That's what salvation brings to us. Now, last week we had a number of testimonies. Have I got time? Uh, I can squeeze one in. I need a testimony. Someone come and share a testimony. Yes, okay. I'm going to pin that one, you just so excuse me. Okay, you go. Okay, well, this is not at all planned. Um, just something that Phil said that, you know, I've been somebody that has rejected people. I was engaged to somebody and rejected him. Um, and many years later, I was found myself rejected in marriage. And um, I think when I say, say to you that my heart was broken, 
Um, that to me is that it's in two or three pieces. Um, but in my case, I really felt that my heart had been shattered. I really, I couldn't see a way that I could ever get back on a even keel again after that. And um, it was in being in that place of being completely sort of broken, completely rejected, losing friends, losing um, the life that I thought I was going to have, um, losing relationships with family members on my husband's side. Um, just everything was just, um, you know, one minute it was there, next minute it was all gone. And, um, but, and this is the, ha the happy part, if that wouldn't have happened to me, I would not have come back to Jesus. Um, it was that that turned me around. It was, it was in that time, in that desperate place that I cried out to him. And um, piece by piece, he put me back together. Um, and I was able to very quickly sort of forgive what had happened to me and actually take responsibility for some of the things that I'd done as well. Um, and, you know, when God heals you, he does a proper job. <laughs> he doesn't leave anything undone. And I got to find out who he was and um, that if he says something, he means it. Um, and if he starts something, he finishes it. Um, and that he, he can take something so broken and just completely make it new. And so um, what you said, Phil, about um, salvation, being rejected and having salvation, I mean, that's the thing. If I hadn't have come back to Jesus, I don't actually know where I would be today. Um, but as it is, I'm a very happy bunny. <laughs> and I think that is because I know I'm loved. Um, you know, I felt that I wasn't loved. I was rejected. But I know that I'm so loved. To, you know, and I can stand there and say that today. And that's why I'm, I, I am really happy, you know. And that hasn't really affected, you know, it was, it was a few years not because of that situation, but I think that brought up a lot of other stuff in childhood. Some of those things were on that list. My parents were lovely to me. I was brought up in a very happy home, but there were things that happened. My mum died when I was young and lots of things happened in, in the family that were not very nice. But um, yeah, uh, I think the only way that you can really recover from anything like that is if you're in Jesus, you know, if you come back to him and let him do what he's really good at, <laughs> just letting you know that you belong to him and uh, he belongs to you and that with him, he, he can take anything and make it right. So that's my testimony. <laughs> okay, we'll have a little break here. We'll have a cup of tea and... Um, Come back shortly. Thank you. Welcome back. Uh, we're going to start this session uh, with a testimony, and uh, I hope to have uh, one or two more at the end if we.
we have time. So I think Sarah's going to share with us now. So I'll just wire you up so we don't miss anything. Excuse me, I'll just put that on there. Okay. These are just two really little stories. And, you know, I feel a bit sort of trivialising the subject, really. But, I mean, my first one was I did go to boarding school and I did love it. <laughs> And it was, <laughs> it was very Enid Blyton. And, and so um, when I was a teenager, I was there 16, I suppose, you know, the first, first um, exciting opportunity to have a boyfriend. There was a, it caused a major problem in the, in the uh, year group. And um, so there's a big split, a big rivalry between me and this other girl. And, uh, and basically the whole, the whole year group turned on me and reject really rejected me and uh but the thing is for me it didn't go terribly deep I mean I hated it obviously it was horrible but um I mean I was 16 and and we I was always I was all I always um had a faith and a belief in God and um and of course along came this Elvis song <laughs> on the radio in our in our um Oh, I've forgotten what we used to call it, you know, common room. And it was Elvis singing, take your troubles to the chapel. <laughs> and and, I, and it just, I mean, it just hit me. Take, and I, I looked it up the other day, and in fact, the song is, you saw me crying in the chapel, the tears I shed were tears of joy. Anyway, it goes on and goes on. But it was the line... Take your troubles to the chapel. Get down on your knees and pray. Then your burdens will be lighter and you'll surely find the way. And, and we did have a little chapel which we could go to before we went into uh, to bed at night. And I went in and I did exactly that, but I, I'm often used to. But, but, I mean, it was all solved in a, a few days. And I think I actually won as well. So <laughs> I won the man. <laughs> But so that was the one. I just wanted to tell you the other story because the other story, <laughs> the other story is quite funny. Um, I ha we had um, we needed a gardener, a garden designer, to do our front garden. So I got this really good friend of mine who's quite prickly to um, do a design for us, and she she wrote me a letter to do it f say formally. Yes, I said, dear Sarah, you know I'd really like to design your garden and telling us how much it was going to cost. But in the middle of this letter, she put, but will you please stop telling me about Jesus? I do not want to know. Just lay off, you know, like this. So, oh, and she's a really good friend of mine. So I was absolutely mortified. I got a pair of scissors and cut this passage out. <laughs> cut it out of the letter. Stuck it back together with sellotape. I've still got it, I'm sure, at home. But the thing is, on this one, um, honestly, within about three weeks, she said, I've got, your, I've got your design. I know what it's going to be. I woke up in the night. I had a, had a dream. I couldn't, go to, I couldn't go back to sleep. The, the, she said, what we're going to have is we're going to have a brick cross. We're going to have, a wood, we're going to have wooden beams for raised beds. We're going to have grasses for the bread, red berries for the blood and the wine. We're going, to have, um, we're going to have a water feature, Holy Spirit, three jets, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. <laughs> it's just unbelievable. 
she caused me a lot of grief, but God had the day. <laughs> there you are. Bless you. There we go. I'm not going to say anything. I can't. I'm just going to get on with the next teaching. Thank you very much, Sarah. Thank you. It's good to hear, isn't it? People's experiences, people sharing their life, really, and the things that, you know, cheers for us and the things that destroy us, really. We need to hear uh, how God is working in our life. Fantastic. This lesson, then, is we're going to look at Jesus and uh, how he was rejected, really, all the way through his life, how he had to uh, bear rejection, but it never had the consequences in his life that it has on ordinary folk. Jesus is the solution, really, to every problem that we have. He just is. There isn't anything that he can't deal with in our lives. And that's both in the material realm, in the spiritual realm, in any realm. We're told to bring everything to God and bring all our cares to him. What's the point if we bring all our cares? He said, oh, I can't fix that one. He fixes everything. He can fix everything. And he fixes rejection. We've seen how it affects everyone's life, how it has affected our lives, how we've thought through uh, the different ways it affects us, and we can be wounded terribly by it, but Jesus is the one who can solve the problem here. Someone has suggested of all the people that ever walked on the earth, Jesus was more rejected than anyone else. Uh, see, Jesus had to carry pain for us. He had to experience the very worst of life uh, so that he could understand us. He was touched with the same problems that we were touched with. Uh, when he comes to judge us, it will be one man judging another man or woman, and he knows. You can't say, well, I would have been different if it was only for X, Y, and Z. He goes, no, I was there. I felt it. I know exactly what you could and couldn't do. So uh, we have seen, probably through our studies, uh, the rejection has been with us, with creation, right from the beginning. We studied how it was there with Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. We saw that its source is spiritual, how the enemy came and did what he did. We have seen that it will affect us both physically and mentally, emotionally, crippling us, just causing us to be totally ineffective of life. We will study now how Jesus was identified with rejection throughout the whole of his life. We've looked in this first lesson how through conception and all of these things and growing up as a child and we'll see that Jesus experienced these sorts of things. He experienced them so he could free us from them. He had to experience those things. He has to experience death. He has to experience what it is to bear the whole sin of the world so that he could die for us. He has to experience these things to liberate us. But in experiencing all the rejection, rejection never controlled his life. 
like it does people. It controls their lives. He never manifested the fruit of it. We've looked at the fruits of it in our lives. He never ever manifested that. And he never let it take root in his life. He knew how to deal quickly with things. Remember when they were nailing him to the cross, while they were hammering the nails in, he was saying, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Just as they were doing it, it's like, almost like before they were doing it, he was forgiving them. Even with the disciples, you know, when he was washing their feet, he knew the next day they would all run away from him. The very feet that he was washing, they would use to run away from him, yet he washed their feet. It was almost like a gesture before it even happened, I'm forgiving you, I'm forgiving you. He dealt quickly with things, so things never took a root in his life. He was able to do that. But rejection did affect him. It affected him deeply, like it affects us. He experienced the things that we experienced. Finally, along with sin, it helped to kill him. He bears the sin, but he bears the rejection in his own body. And of course, he gives up his spirit, but it was bearing the sin and bearing the rejection of all that brought him to that place of death. Let's look at then his life. His early years, to all appearances, he was illegitimate to all appearances. We know he wasn't, but that didn't stop the shame that Mary had to carry. And she could have been stoned to death for becoming pregnant. And so society would have been against her. Her family wouldn't have understood, would they? I mean, they thought she was a lovely girl, but this was taking it a bit too far. An angel appearing and God saying this. So whatever she experienced, we've already learned, she transmitted it to this child that was in her. She couldn't stop herself doing that. They were her emotions, they were her feelings, all the harsh things that were said to her, it was transmitted because he didn't receive that into himself. Somehow he didn't. In the last three days of her journey, she heavily pregnant, being carried on a donkey all those miles. I don't know what effect that would have had on him. Uh, trauma, discomfort, pain, all those things we've learned they are transmitted into the child, as it were. She arrives at Bethlehem, which is apparently Joseph's hometown. That's why he went there. I would have thought there was family there. So why doesn't the family take them in? They're ashamed, you see. They're ashamed because of who she is and what she's done. So they are rejected by the family. They find themselves in a public place where there are animals or whether it was a stable or a cave or something, we don't know. But he's born in that way. In the early years, we know that the king wants to kill him. And so they lived with the fear of that all the time. He grew up in a home where there was fear and poverty and rejection from the family, you see. Awful, if you just think about it, those two years before they escaped to Egypt. 
when they take him to the temple, he's just eight days old, they offer a pair of doves and two young pigeons. Do you know why? Because it was the cheapest offering that you could offer because they had no money. So he grew up in poverty. He grew up in shame. He grew up in fear. They fled as refugees to Egypt. They had nothing to start with. They had even less now. Just the few things that they could carry, they went off to this land, a land where they couldn't speak the language, didn't know the people, couldn't settle, wouldn't be accepted. Just a terrible way to live. He was an alien, you see. He had to experience all the things that we've been talking about. He had to experience in his own life. So we couldn't say, oh, it's all right for you, Jesus. No, it wasn't all right for Jesus. It's definitely not all right for us, and it wasn't all right for him. He was put through all of these things. And we know we don't know much then about his life. We jump to when he was 12 years of, old, uh, of age. And remember when his parents, uh, they lost him, really, didn't they? they he was stayed there. I don't know how he came separated from them. Uh, but fear would have come upon him, having lost his parents, uh, this... Had they abandoned him? Left him? What was it? I don't know. And when they do come back, his mother scolds him. She really does. It was part of her own fear. You know, parents get fearful. <laughs> it just comes out on the kids, doesn't it? But it's their fear, really. They're pleased to see them. But at the same time, it comes out like this. She called him thoughtless. How could you do that to us? This must have hurt him, mustn't it? <laughs> the last thing he was was thoughtless. He was doing what he knew only to do is what his father had called him to do. Had he been abandoned? Maybe he felt that. Maybe he felt rejected, but it never took its root within him. He ministered for three and a half years. It says, as you read through the Gospels, that the first year was year of popularity. Everything was going well. Everything was it just people were clamoring to him, healing people, delivering people. It was just it was he was popular. In fact, he had to run and hide sometimes. He was so popular because they wanted to make him king and exalt him, and and do the, and he, he had to keep moving, keep moving. But then it says, for the next two and a half years, they were the years of opposition. Remember when he says to them, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. They said that all the disciples that were with him, they all left him. They deserted him. He had to feel that, you know what I mean? He had to feel what that was like. It was like he was so popular, and then it was all ripped away from him. The opposition was savage, more savage against him because of his popularity. He had to experience all of that in his life, being totally deserted by all these people that have made these promises. Oh, you know, we want you to be king and all that. It, it was over so quickly. There were assassination attempts on his life. Many times they came to take him. And it says they were plotting, doesn't it, all the time. They were plotting how they might destroy him and kill him. He heard all that stuff. He experienced it, you see. 
it's quite savage when you look at his life in that respect. We, we see him and we love him and we see all the good things and we, we long to be with him. We, we long to see him, to actually look into his face, to see what he's, he's really like. You know, when you look at his face, you'll be changed. That's what it says. I don't know what that means, really. But as you look upon him, your face will change to be like his face. That's just an aside. Let's get back to here. He's, he's, they're chasing him to kill him. They're plotting to kill him. His own people, the people who he's come to minister to, the people who he wants to share his life with, the people he wants to bring to the Father, he stands up in his own synagogue, remember, in Nazareth, and he says, Jubilee has come. It's not every 50 years. Jubilee has come. I've brought the Jubilee to you. Now, this is what you've got to do. If you've got slaves, you have to release them. If people owe you money, you've got to release them. He was telling them what they should do. And what did they do? They become angry, resentful, bitter towards him. It says they chased him out the synagogue. They would have taken him and thrown him over the cliff if they could have. They were his own people. They knew him. They, they said things horrible about him. Isn't he the carpenter's son? They said. Jesus said, a prophet never has honour in his own town. He was talking about himself, and this was his town, and they knew him. He says, they've shown me no honour, no respect, nothing at all. If he had sung them a merry tune, they would have loved him, but he didn't. He told them the truth. They called him a Samaritan. That was really insulting to call a Jew a, Sar a Samaritan. They were hated hated by the Jews. They called him demon-possessed. He can only do these things by the power of demons. Fancy calling the Son of God demon-possessed. Just terrible. He was criticised because he spent time with tax collectors and harlots and, and common, ordinary people. God wouldn't do that. God wouldn't act like that. He doesn't even know who he's talking to. They showed him no respect. And at the end, the people I'm talking about, the people, they demanded his death. Yeah, they were wound up, but they had mouths. Kill him, crucify him, we don't want him. And all he had done was come and minister life and healing and health and restoration and deliverance and he had come to them, and they were the very ones. And of course, as he was on the cross, they mocked him and ridiculed him and called him everything. He had a miserable life, didn't he? Quite miserable. But it never took root, you see. He suffered more rejection than we ever have. That's the truth. He had to. To be able to carry it away, he had to suffer it and bear it for us. He had to show us how to cope with it, to survive. 
It says in John 1, 10 and 11, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, he made this world. The world didn't recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. His own did not receive him. And the leaders, of course, they were jealous of him, his popularity. He was doing the things that they would have loved to have done, just for the people to come and clamour to hear him, to want to hear everything he said, to be close to him, to touch him. Thousands came to gather round him that the religious people said, we've got to do something about this. We can't have this. So they sought always to attack him. They claimed that he was a blasphemer, that in what he said he disrespected God. To think that he could forgive sins, what a disgusting thing to say. And they never said it quietly, they said it publicly so everyone could hear, to shame and to embarrass him. He very rarely came back at them. He just let them say it. They criticised his disciples. They kept pushing him all the time. Show us a miracle, show us a miracle. Prove you're God, show us a miracle. Just to wind him up, really. And even when he showed them a miracle, they would criticise him and just say, remember that woman with the curvature of the spine and he delivers her and heals her. And the, the synagogue ruler says, this is disgusting that you should have done this on the Sabbath day, should have done it some other day. I mean, disgraceful the way they treated him. They embarrassed him publicly all the time. All the time. It was public. It was public. They brought false accusations against him at his trial. They got people to come and lie and tell all sorts of things that just weren't really true. And his family, his family, they came one day, remember, and they said, you need to come with us. They thought he was mad, honestly. They thought he was mad. They wanted to take him away so he wouldn't get himself into any more trouble. But he didn't go, did he? He said, I'm sorry, I can't come with you. They simply just didn't believe him. It says that Mary hid things in her heart I don't think she got it. She didn't get it. Um, she loved her son and she could only see this was going to end in a terrible way and so she tried to pull him back. He said, no, I've got to go all the way with this. Their rejection is good for you. It's good for you that I'm rejected in this way. <laughs> and his close disciples and his friends this was the man that had eternal life. Remember when all the others left, he says, are you going as well? And I say, where, where can we go? You have words. And when you speak them, they just burn within us. They're words of eternal life. They are, they are not just everlasting life, but life that is so full of God. See, God, God had sent Jesus to step into life and show us what life we would enjoy in the future. And so he lives amongst them. 
and he talks with them and they're just amazed at this man. A man from the future who has stepped into the present to say, I'm going to take you so you can live like me, the way I'm living. And it's, John says, we touched him and we saw him. We handled this man from the future who showed us what it was to be a man, a man of God, a man of purity and life, a man of power. And at the end, they all deserted him. They ran from him. Peter, who declared, if everyone goes, I will be loyal to you. He denied him. Jesus said, before the cock crows, you will have denied me. And he did. And Judas who was counted with the twelve. He did everything the others did. He probably raised the dead, cast out demons, healed the sick, raised lepers. He sat there with Jesus and he betrays him for 30 pieces of silver. And all those followers left him. In his own words, Jesus repeatedly foretold his coming rejection and death. It says this in Luke 9 and 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected. He must. He knew this at the start of his ministry. He knew what would happen to him. It says in Luke 9 and 44, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. Luke 17, 25. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by his generation. Luke 18 and 32 says this, he will be handed over to the Gentiles. And what will they do? They will mock him, insult him, flog him, spit on him and kill him. Oh, we know that scene, don't we, where the Romans took him before his trial. They did all of these things to him. The Son of God, God's representative that had stepped out of the future into this present world. They did those things to him. He couldn't have been more rejected, surely. That was surely the limit to it. No, there was one greater rejection than this. He was going to take upon himself the sin of the whole world and bear it in his body. And as he takes it upon himself and he looks to his father, Within his spirit, he sees his father turn his back on him. Oh, he had come from the future, from God into the present, as it were. He had created the world with his father. He never did anything until his father told him. He, he, didn't, he didn't say anything or go anywhere. He could do nothing. He totally depended on his father for everything. And his father rejected him. He rejected him because he did the very thing his father told him to do. 
and that he, he was sent to do that. And the father had to do it. He had to feel the rejection of God so that we would never have to feel his rejection. It says he tasted death for us that we would never have to taste death. We probably, I will, some here might, he might, Jesus might come and you don't taste death. Us older ones will probably taste death in the sense that we'll pass from this life to the next. But the taste of death, the separation from God for eternity, he has taken that. When I die, I'll close my eyes and the next time I open them, he will be there. The saviour of the world, my saviour, Jesus will be there. Oh, it'll all be worth it. It'll all be worth it. All the pain, all the rejection, all the everything that's gone on. It won't matter one bean when I see him. And as I look upon him, I will be transformed by his appearance. You know, if you spend a long time looking at people, you get to look like them. Well, they say that about dogs and horses, don't they? You, you look at your dog long enough, you end up looking like your dog. Uh, it's probably your, your muscles things, you know. <laughs> you, you, sort of, you look at them, you know, and your m muscles relax and your tissue changes, you know. You, yeah, okay. Uh, we will look at Jesus and our faces will change. The, the muscles and everything, it'd just be something else, wouldn't it? Something else. It's like you just want to die, don't you, sometimes? You know what I mean? <laughs> wow, Jesus. Just like, I mean, do you want to see him? Is it just me? Am I a bit bonkers? Maybe I am, I don't know. I want to see him. You know what I mean? I, I, I have to go all my life not knowing what he looks like. I sort of read about him and I know him in here. But one day I'll see him. That's another detour. He takes the sin of the world upon him. Isaiah 53, we know it so well, it sums it up. He was despised and he was rejected by men. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities, griefs, and sicknesses, and he carried our sorrows and our pain. If he carried anything, he carried rejection. He was never sick. So you could say, well, he never carried sickness. He carried it on the cross, but he carried rejection throughout his life. If he knows how to carry something, it's rejection. He knows that. He lived it every day of his life. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. He was. Everything that happened to Jesus was the smiting of his father for our benefit. 
He didn't want to do any of those things or allow any of those things all through his life, let alone the cross that happened to Jesus. He would have stopped every one of them, but he let it happen for our sake. You don't have to bear rejection because he bore the pain of it for you. We must see this. We are to appropriate what he has lived in He saved us through his life and we must bring it into our lives. Smitten by him and afflicted, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. The peace that Denise shared with you was born by Jesus. When she came back to Jesus, he put it all together in her life again. How does he do it? I don't know. It's a mystery. It is a work of the Spirit. But if he says he does it, he does it. It's as good that we can understand as much as we can, but we, what we don't understand, we'll just receive it anyway. I don't understand it, Lord, but I will receive it. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of it all. Yet it was the Lord's will, you see, to crush him. It was the Lord's will and to cause him to suffer. So the greatest rejection was when his father turned from him. And that cry, you know, that he lets out. My, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken, he uses that word. Why have you forsaken me? Why have you rejected me? Why have you left me here on my own? We will never suffer being forsaken. We might experience it in our lives, but he carries the pain of it away. People talk about the cross being a divine exchange. Jesus was punished that we might be forgiven. Jesus was wounded that we might be healed. Jesus was made sin with our sinfulness that we might be made righteous with his righteousness. He died our death that we might receive his life. Jesus endured our poverty that we might share in his abundance. Jesus bore our shame that we might share his glory. Jesus was made a curse that we might enter into the blessing. And Jesus endured our rejection that we might have his acceptance in the Father. God loves you. He does not reject you. He does not reject you. Somehow that's got to be the most important thing to us. We will suffer rejection through our lives until the end. This is a broken world, like I said. People do unloving things and uncaring things. And we, sometimes we go to church and we take our guard down and that's where it hits us the worst. It's horrible. We said, I didn't expect that. But God says, come over here. I don't reject you. I'll never, I'll never reject you. I rejected my son 
so that I would never have to reject you. Ah, oh, it's fantastic. Fantastic. By faith, then, we receive that from him. We receive acceptance from him. We appropriate all of these things into our lives. How does this work? When we first come to Christ, he reveals to us we're sinners. It's such a long time, I've forgotten. And I was so young anyway. Sometimes I wish I, wish I was grown up and big and I'd done lots of naughty things. So when he saved me, I would have known, no, I don't really want that. I'm glad I was saved when I was a little kid and I didn't know anything because I was saved from a lot of the other bad stuff. But people who, who have lived this life, this awful, sinful life, and they meet Jesus, and all of a sudden the light shines on it, and they go, oh, I'm in a mess. My life is in a mess. And they bow their heads in shame and they receive Jesus. And this is a mystery. He takes all the guilt of our sin away. Somehow, the application of the blood to our heart removes the stain of sin, the consciousness of sin, the guilt of sin is removed. That's what salvation is. If you still feel guilty for your past sins, I don't even know if you're saved. Sorry. But we know that the guilt has gone. You just think of some of the things that you did, some of the things that you said, and the guilt has gone. You might feel a little bit emotional about it, but the guilt has gone. You can stand before your father and say, here I am. Here I am. The guilt has gone. And that's how he saves us from rejection as well. We stand there before him and somehow what Christ did, in the same way it carries guilt away, it carries the pain, the fruit, the roots of rejection away from our lives. And so we know I'm not rejected. That might take some time. I understand that. Everything takes time. God wants to appreciate what we have. So he doesn't rush it and do it in two seconds. So we grow into this place. We come to this place where we know that rejection has gone from our lives. We're whole in him. Scripture says, it says an interesting thing. It says that we live in Christ. Another one of those funny sayings, what on earth does that mean, to live in Christ? Perhaps it just means we belong to him. We just belong to him. Perhaps it means something more than that, because you say, I don't know what that means either, Phil. I'll tell you what I think it means. We share his life. To be in Christ is to share his life. So when I received Christ as my saviour, he came and he came with his life into my life. And if he doesn't bear rejection, then nor do I. 
And the more I allow his life to permeate and be inside of me, the freer I become, the freer to love, the freer to serve, the freer to be like Christ. And so our life is just receiving more of him into our life. So he possesses us completely. We can be possessed by the devil. That's not a good deal. We can be possessed by Jesus. That's a good deal. That he possesses every part of him. Through faith then, as we put our faith in the death and the resurrection of Christ, he enters into us and we are healed of rejection. We've got time for one more testimony. If not, there are some testimonies in this book. So I'll whet your appetite with this. Daphne, would you come and read this testimony? Thank you. Just that story, it's a very short story. Okay, this is Annie's story. My parents were very young when they married and I came along after one year. I remember sitting playing on the floor under the ironing board while mother was ironing and she said, don't grow up and get married and have children like me, but have a career. I understood from this that somehow I was a blockage to her doing what she had wanted to do and I felt a sense of rejection. My mother was a perfectionist and although she loved me, I could never fully please her. My grandfather remarked that she treated me like a doll and always wanted me to be perfect. I've come to realise that I had a core belief that she wasn't pleased with me because I was unworthy of love and not good enough to be loved. I believe that God loved me enough to save me from hell but was not sure he would want to heal me because I was not significant. Excuse me. I developed multiple sclerosis which was aggressive and soon I needed a wheelchair to get around. I desperately needed healing. As part of the healing process, I needed to confess my unbelief and accept the truth of God's love. I needed to receive a new deep understanding of his care for me in my inmost being. I received prayer over two years, resulting in much inner healing, but there was still no change to my physical condition. One day my Heavenly Father brought me some very special people to pray with me. I forgave my mother for her rejection and my difficult upbringing in a deeper way than ever before. I also forgave her for leaving me so unprepared for raising a family. Curses were lifted 
and I was released from generational sickness and I was completely healed in that moment. The next day I chased my daughter around the local park, something I'd never ever been able to do. I've now been healed for 24 years and have no further signs of multiple cirrhosis. Good one. Good one. Oh. Oh, so, if we carry these pains, you see, of woundings, it manifests itself in all ways through our body. Don't live with this stuff a minute longer. Don't, don't do it. Press into God. Find someone you can pray with. Someone who will pray with you. If curses need to be lifted from your life, or you need to be delivered, or you just need to surrender wholly and completely to God, press on through into God and live in the freedom and liberty that he's won for you on the cross. We never have to feel unloved, unwanted, abandoned, ever, because Christ bore it for us. God bless you all. Amen. You've been listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please come on back next week for the final lesson in the rejection module. Also, if you would like to partner with Arise Ministry, you can do so by normally going over to our website at ariseministry.org.uk where you can make a secure online donation. Arise Ministry, a living legacy.